invite you to open your Bibles to the prophet Joel. Joel is one of the minor prophets. We're doing a, a sermon series, a survey, if you will, of the minor prophets. One sermon out of each of them as we look at it. The reason for that is actually worth considering. Uh, uh, the, the prophets came at times of national trial, national difficulty for Israel and Judah, and they brought God's message in those times. We certainly are going through a time of national difficulty, and so the message of the prophets is a timely one for us now. I will remind you that there is an insert in the bulletin that does help, uh, it does have a sermon outline, would help you follow along this morning. So, Becky and I were on our 25th wedding anniversary uh, some years ago now. We were in Paris. And we uh, got up one morning and we walked down to the subway station, the, the metro as the Parisians call it. And we were awaiting there the train that we thought was going to take us out to the Palace of Versailles, that famous French tourist attraction. While we were standing there, uh, and in fact the, the train pulled up, we got up from the bench and began to board the train. And a stranger came up and grabbed me by the arm and I speak no French, and he spoke very little English. But it was clear that he was trying to tell me that we were getting on the wrong train. And we had only a split second to decide what to do, because the train was going to pull out. Now, we had gotten a map from the, from the, uh, the front desk of the hotel that gave the metro schedule, and there was a, a board up there. We could kind of make sense of some of the words up there on the, on the platform, and we were pretty sure that this was the train we needed to get to the palace at Versailles. But he was absolutely insistent that we were getting on the wrong train. So what do we do? Do we trust ourselves and our understanding of the map and our ability to translate the, the, the schedule? Or do we trust this complete stranger who seems to believe that he is right? In a small way, I think that captures the experience of the Christian witness. All around us, people are boarding the wrong trains, confident in their own ability to read the signs. So the question before us is, do we get involved? Is it worth the effort to try to communicate with them? After all, like the Shaws and that Frenchman, we don't seem to speak the same language as the world. They don't seem to understand justification and sanctification and regeneration. It's like we, they don't know what we're saying. So should we even bother? And are we absolutely sure that their way is the wrong way and ours is the right one. What do we do with a world climbing on the wrong train? And, above all else, we risk a response. Think about how we might have responded to that man that morning. We may have said, leave us alone. We're not idiots. We can read a map. We can figure this out. We know what we're doing. So often when we witness to the world, that is their response to us. Leave us alone. We know what we're doing. Joel jumps onto the train platform of our lives, or at least the, live, the lives of the ancient uh, uh, Israelites and Judaites, and he says, you're getting on the wrong train. You're headed in the wrong direction. So let's take a look at Joel and try to understand his message for us. Before we do so, let's Seek the Spirit's leading. Holy Spirit, you spoke through the prophet Joel so many centuries ago. Speak through him this morning. Let him jump onto the train platform of our lives, proclaiming the day of the Lord. And as we see the yesterday, the today, and the someday of the Lord, let us grow in confidence that we might become like Joel, warning others that they are getting on the wrong train pray this in Christ's name. Amen. In your bulletin, that outline, you can see the, the, the three points of the sermon this morning. Now, I'm not particularly fond of my ability to entitle things. I often think my sermon titles are kind of lame. There's nothing memorable about them. They don't, I'm just not good at that. That As you know from my long preaching, I'm not good at concision. 
capturing it in that moment. But I'm really proud of these points this morning. Look at the, the yesterday of the Lord, the today of the Lord, and the someday of the Lord. The main theme of the book of Joel is the day of the Lord, and we are going to see that he looks at the past, the present, and the future as they pertain to this question of the day of the Lord. So we have the yesterday of the Lord, the today of the Lord, and the someday of the Lord. In your bulletins, I think there are some verses, the sermon text is listed as being some verses out of Joel 3, but as the week went on, as my preparation uh, got deeper and fuller, I realized I could not use just a few verses out of Joel, but rather we needed a sense of the whole of Joel. Joel fits together. It is a united whole. In fact, it is quite possibly one entire sermon. And so to try to take just a few verses didn't seem to do it justice. So we're going to take a look at the whole book of Joel, but we won't look at every single verse in Joel. I will read some verses, stop, make comments, skip some verses, let you know what I skipped so you can follow along in your Bible, and we will go, we will work our way through Joel 1, 2, and 3 to get a sense of the fullness of the book of Joel. So now, starting in Joel chapter 1, verse 1, the introduction to the book, the word of the Lord that came to Joel, son of Pethuel. I'll stop right there and say this, that isn't terribly helpful. Joel was a common name in the Old Testament. There are at least a dozen of them. The name was common in ancient Israel and Judah. Joel means Yahweh is El. Yahweh is God. The Lord is God. That's what the name means, and therefore it was common in those parts at that time. And none of the other Joels in the Old Testament are listed as having this father, Pethuel, so we have no idea who this man was. More than that, we have no idea when he was. Joel gives us nothing by which we might date his prophecy. That is a bit unusual. Some of the other books of the Bible are difficult to date, but there are clues there. There's nothing here. He mentions no kings. He mentions no historical events that we can identify. Oh, sure, he's going to mention a locust plague in a moment. But it's not like we have copies of the Jerusalem Gazette with a date at the masthead and a headline that says, Locust plague wipes out Judah farmers. We have no idea when this locust plague occurred. We don't know. And he calls the people to repentance, but he doesn't even list which sins they should repent from. We know from the Old Testament that there were certain sins that were prevalent at certain times in the history of the people of God. But we don't know when Joel fits into there. We can say this with some confidence. Joel makes a lot of references to temple worship. So most scholars are pretty certain he did not minister between 586 and 516 because there was no temple during that time. But whether he ministered in, the, in 300 years before 586 or 200 years after 516, nobody knows. I put him here as the second in our chronological list because I had to put him somewhere. So here we go further. Oh, by the way, what is one of the things we must catch? If we have no clue about the time setting and the historical setting, that is a clue. It means we don't need to know those things. Let's not spend more time worrying about those things. The key to Joel is not where he fits into history, but how he fits into the scriptures. The key to understanding Joel is understanding the message he brings in light of the scriptures, not his time period. Continuing now in verse to this section I have entitled The Yesterday of the Lord. Joel takes his audience's attention, it takes our attention, and points it to a recent catastrophe. There was a locust plague that had just happened in the land. Now I want to be a little careful not to say with certainty that everything here directly applies to a pandemic in the land, but nevertheless, in a time of national crisis, the message of Joel is fitting and timely. So picking up in verse 2. Hear this, you elders, give ear all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or the days of your fathers? <clears throat> Unprecedented catastrophe. Tell your children of it, and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. One quick technical comment before we look at the message. 
Do not get caught up in a silly debate over the meaning of these four types of locusts. Oh, you can, by the way, you get on the internet, you can get lost in a hurry on what these locusts mean. Are they the four life cycles, uh, four stages of the life cycle of, a, of, the, of the insect? Are they four different species? Well, who cares? That misses the point. The point is this, that the destruction has been complete. The devastation is utter. It is total. They've gone, the locusts have gone, God's judgment on the people has gone over the land four times so that nothing is missed. There's nothing left behind. You know how it goes. You send your child to go do something and they come back and tell you it's done. You send it back another time. Let's go make sure it's done. Oh yeah, I didn't, I missed this. Go back another time. Oh yeah. By the fourth time, even a child can get it done. And these servants of the Lord, these locusts, have rained down complete destruction on Judah. That's the point. Not the technicalities of the locusts. Now, you and I have very little experience with locust plagues. We, we, we are removed from the, aggregate, uh, the, aggregate, or the agrarian foundation of our culture, of our society, uh, most of us anyway. <clears throat> so I did a little looking, and I found out that last summer in uh, uh, eastern sub-Saharan Africa, in, in Kenya, Uganda, these areas, there was a, a catastrophic locust plague. And the BBC article I read gave some data to help us understand what these plagues might be like. So, uh, uh, and, and by the way, you want to talk about a tough year. So on top of the poverty that's already common to sub-Saharan Africa, and on top of COVID, they had a locust plague. Our brothers in I don't know if you know this, Sub-Saharan Africa is the fastest growing region for the Christian church. We have many brothers and sisters in Christ who are suffering there right now. And we should be praying for them, lifting them up. So here's what happened last summer. The locust swarm that came upon this region, it's estimated that at, 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 at the high point of the swarm of locusts, the population density for these insects was hovering, now of course I'm getting this out of the BBC, so it's all metric, um, was hovering at 81 million locusts per square kilometer. I didn't know what to do with that. I didn't know how to make sense of that. So I did some conversions to help us understand. I think most of you here know where Becky and I live, that little corner lot across from the fountain there at Idlewild. It's a quarter acre lot. So if you can kind of picture, you, most of you have been there, you can picture our little lot. That population density means that our little corner lot, our little tiny yard, wait for it, 81 thousand locusts. You know what that means for sure? That if we needed groceries, I was going to have to physically throw Becky out the door because I wasn't going out there. <laughs> 81,000 locusts on our little yard. That's what Kenya went through last summer with its locust plague. You say, now what difference does that make? Well, each locust eats about two grams of food per day. That doesn't seem like that. It's not very much. But to help you put it into perspective, we have 81,000 locusts eating two grams each. That's enough food to feed 35 human beings for the day. And they were consuming that day after day. And they weren't limited to one quarter acre. Some of the swarms last summer in Kenya measured a half mile wide and 15 miles long. Utter, complete devastation. That's what was happening in Judah. That's what had just happened there. And we see the destruction. When we pick up in verse 7, we see some description of it. It has it, the swarm of locusts, has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. They've cleaned every bit of food that was available. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The sorrow is as great as, as that of a young woman who gets married that morning and before she can consummate the wedding that evening, her husband dies. That's the grief these people are having. The grain offering and the drink offering, verse 9, are cut off from the house of the Lord. We need to pause there 
and recognize something. Joel, here in verse 9, and again in verses 13, 14, and 16, is going to lament the impact of the locust on worship. It did cause me to pause and say this. Have we grieved the impact of the pandemic on worship? Oh, we've grieved how it's taken loved ones. We've grieved how it's affected our jobs. We've grieved how it's disrupted fellowship. And it's okay to, to long for that fellowship. We should want the fellowship of the saints. But have we grieved over the loss of worship? Joel mourns the impact of the pandemic on worship. He is sad because there is... It's, it's one thing that there's no grain to feed the people. It's another thing that there's no grain to bring into the house of the Lord as an offering. We must grieve the loss of worship. Verses 10, 11, and 12 are further descriptions of the agricultural effects of the locust. Um, verse 13 again talks about the impact it has on worship, so I pick up now in verse 14. Consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. The remainder of chapter 1 uh, continues to describe the damage done by the plague of locusts. Uh, and it, interestingly, it closes out with some references to fire. Apparently what's happened is that the, the plants, so thoroughly denuded of their leaves and bark, are withering and dying and drying up. And because the plants are drying up, wildfires are springing up around the land. Seems to be what's going on there. So let's stop and consider the yesterday of the Lord. If you were to ask anyone who is familiar with the scripture, a Bible scholar or even a, 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 a well-informed layperson, and say to, you, say to them, quick, what comes to your mind when I mention the book of Joel? I think the vast majority of them respond with the day of the Lord. Joel is all about the day of the Lord. At least nine times in just three chapters, he makes reference to that day or the day of the Lord. And so we're going to understand. In fact, at the top of the notes, I have a little thing that says, key to understanding. If we're going to understand Joel, we've got to understand the day of the Lord. So let me explain to you what, real quickly what it is. The day of the Lord is a day of judgment. The day of the Lord is a day of judgment. Now don't think about final judgment here. There is a final judgment, and we will talk about that. But in the scriptures, the day of the Lord is any time the Lord comes in judgment. This is one of the reasons that many interpreters of the scriptures will look at Jesus talking about uh, the coming of the Lord and see it happening in 70 AD. Um, in part, not that his bodily return, but that he came in judgment in AD 70 when Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed. The day of the Lord is a day of judgment. Let me explain, let me show you from Joel. I'll move through several verses real quickly here. In 115, we already saw it comes as destruction from the Almighty. A common theme of judgment. In 2.1, we're going to see in a moment, it says to blow a trumpet, sound an alarm. Again, a common theme in the scriptures about warning people about judgment. <clears throat> in 2.2, it is a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. One of the things we must recognize is the common metaphors in Scripture. One of those is the metaphor of light. Light is a metaphor for walking in the gracious presence of God. For having Him with us in a pleasant way. If light is the metaphor for His gracious presence, darkness is a common metaphor for His wrath-filled presence. It is a day of darkness because it is a day of God's wrath and judgment. 2.11 asks who can endure the day of the Lord. Failing to endure, why do we not endure? Why is there death? Because of sin. Who can endure the day of the Lord? The question is because it's a judgment day. If it were not a judgment day, there'd be no question of enduring it. 2.32 offers salvation in the day of the Lord to all who call upon the name of the Lord. Again, you'd need no salvation if it were not a day of judgment. 
And in 3.2 and 3.12, we're going to see references to the Valley of Jehoshaphat. We'll talk more about that in a few minutes. But it's a, uh, uh, the Valley of Judgment is what that means. The day of the Lord is a day of judgment, and that is key to understanding Joel. So as we read these snippets from Joel 1, what is Joel's understanding of the source of this plague? Does he explain the locust as merely a natural phenomenon? You know, think about it. Does Joel explain it? How would we explain this today? How did my BBC article explain what happened in Kenya last summer? Well, you see, it works like this. <clears throat> These desert locusts, in most summers when it's kind of dry, only a few of them can hatch and, and breed and mate and lay eggs. And most of the eggs don't hatch because there's not enough water, and they just stay on the ground. And they can live on the ground. Those eggs can per persist underground for, for years. And then, if you get a rainy summer, all of the eggs hatch all at once. And the locusts come out in this huge swarm. By the way, every word of what I just told you is true. But you see the mistake we make there? To act as if it is science or God. Natural work or supernatural work is to misunderstand what Joel is trying to get us to see. This came at the call of God. God sent these locusts. That's why he tells the people to cry out to the Lord. That's why in verse 14, he wants them to call out to God. We must not ever act as if it's natural phenomena or providence at work. But rather, one of the things we saw consistently through our study of Acts was that God works providentially through natural things. Miracles are not the only working of God. Everything is the working of God. You see, that's why in verse 3, he calls out to the people to tell their children, and their children's children, and all the generations after that. He wants them to know that this was done by God. Do not lose sight of this. This is important. What has just happened to us is the yesterday of the Lord. It was a day of judgment. And we cannot miss that. Why does Joel care? Why does that matter so much to him? Well, let me ask you this. Why, when you get on Amazon, do you look at how many stars a product has? Why is it when you're looking to get a contractor for your house, you're going to go on Angie's list and see how they are rated? Because what they have done in the past is hopefully an indication of what they'll do in the future. If this contractor has done shoddy work and not cleaned up after himself and overcharged his customers and that's the review, are you going to just say to yourself, well, I think this time he'll be different. I'm going to hire him. No. Joel points us, he points the audience in his day to what has happened in the past so that they will understand that God has done what he said he would do. Our Old Testament reading from Deuteronomy 28, Moses says that one of the things that will happen if you are unfaithful to the Lord is he will send locusts. And Joel says, look, locusts came. As we read through Deuteronomy 28, we saw then in addition to the locusts, Moses also says, if you persist in your unbelief, if you persist in your unfaithfulness, God will also send armies from the other nations. That's where we pick up in chapter 2. The yesterday of the Lord, what has just happened, what has happened in the past, proves God's faithfulness to his word. And that ought to be a warning for today. 2-1. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. God sent the locusts. Do you not see that he will then eventually also send the enemy armies that he foretold and warned us about? Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. Fire devours before them, and behind them flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like, uh, uh, like war horses they run. And with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains. 
like the crackling of a flame of fire devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them, peoples are in anguish. All faces grow pale. Like warriors, they charge. Like soldiers, they scale the wall. They march each on his way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. This is a powerful and well-trained army. The sun and the moon are darkened. The stars withdraw. I'm oh, sorry. Uh, the, the earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and moon are darkened. The stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Joel's dependence upon Deuteronomy 28 continues. Having pointed to the locust as the fulfillment of the warning of God, he now says, if that's what God did yesterday, then what is he going to do today? What is the today of the Lord? Do we think that because we escaped the, the yesterday of the Lord, his judgment in the locust plague, that there's no more judgment out there? That we're now free to do whatever we want to do? No, that was a call to repentance, he says. And there is more judgment that looms today. The enemies, the foreign armies that Moses foresaw, sit on our doorstep if we do not repent. Now we notice here that the day of the Lord is still on the horizon. Verse 1, blow a trumpet. In other words, this can be avoided. It's the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. Joel wants us to recognize that this has not yet happened. What's his point? How do these two things go together? We've all seen it. We've all been at the store when there's a parent-child uh, interaction going on that is uncomfortable for everybody. The child is pitching a fit. The parent is continuing to issue warnings and threats. The child continues to pitch the fit, and the parent continues not to follow through on the warnings and threats. Why does the child not get in line and do what they're supposed to do? Because the parent has not followed through. Good parents don't issue idle threats. Good parents hold back until it is necessary. And when they issue the threat, they carry through. That is Joel's point. Our Heavenly Father had threatened locusts, and look, locusts came. Are we really going to ignore the threat of the army he's gathering against us? But it's not all bleak. In fact, it's not bleak at all. The threat is not one of hatred or disdain. This is not a, 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 a recess playground threat. You took the kickball, so I'm going to beat you up. This is the warning of a loving parent who does not want to follow through. Look at verse 12. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to Yahweh your God. For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He relents over disaster. What an amazing and wonderful statement. And we can get caught up in the immutability of God. God never changes. How can he change? How can he relent? That's not the point. That's to obscure the grace of God and the love of God. His character does not change. But he's very clear in Jeremiah 18, if I bring a threat against a nation and they repent, I will not execute the threat I brought. But he also says in Jeremiah 18, if I had plans to build up and prosper a nation and they wander from me, then I will turn from the prosperity I had offered and I will bring disaster upon them. God's character is immutable. But his treatment of us, he shows a desire to relent of wrath and of judgment. You see what's going on here? God loves his people. And he's calling out to them, come to me. 
run to me, to be, you be my child, because I love you. This is not a spanking in anger. The locusts were not a fit of God's uncontrolled anger poured out in abuse on his people. A loving parent spanks a child with a lot of explanation. This is why daddy did this. Because I love you. I don't want you to go astray. I'm always amazed at parents who raise children they don't like being around. You've got control. Raise a child you want to be around. And that's what our Heavenly Father is doing. He is trying to train us up to be the people He likes to be around. But you see, there's a problem. He's not just loving and compassionate. He is also holy and righteous. And because he is holy and righteous, he cannot be in the presence of sin. We cannot go to God just as we are, despite what many say. And so many of us at this point might be struggling. How can it be that I can accomplish this? How can I be the child of God he wants me to be? I can't do it. It doesn't matter how many locust plates he sends into my life. I'm still going to sin. It doesn't matter if the next pandemic makes COVID look like the sniffles. I'm still broken. And that's the point. That's where Joel wants you to be. If you're sitting here at this point in Joel and saying, I got this. I can be the child. I, okay, I can take, I learned my lesson from the COVID. I'll, I'll take COVID as the judgment of God. It's the day of the Lord. And I'm going to fix everything needed at all. No, you're missing the point of Joel. You can't be that person. You cannot be the child of God you need to be. And that's why in verse 28, look down in verse 28, he says this. And it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. And that's what Peter preached at Pentecost in Acts 2 in our New Testament reading this morning. You see, we don't have to get there by ourselves. The Lord knows we cannot get there on our own. But the good news of the gospel is that those who will trust in Jesus will be given his spirit to aid them. The helper, the comforter he's called in the gospel of John. The one who comes alongside and says, I will get you there. I will make it a reality. Joel does not call Judah to get there on their own. He says, call the name of the Lord and he will send you the help of his spirit. Look down at verse 32. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape as the Lord has said. By the way, that's not a new oracle from him as the Lord has said. He's quoting Obadiah verse 17 what he's actually quoting there. He's quoting scripture. And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Star ratings when we're shopping online or a contractor's reputation matter because they tell us about how they've performed in the past so that we can have some sense of how they're going to perform now. Some hope that they will be what they're supposed to be. That's Joel's point. The yesterday of the Lord matters because it impacts the today of the Lord. What will you do today with this information? Will you believe that the God who sent the locust plague as he foretold, who did eventually send armies against Judah as Joel warned, will one day send his son back in judgment over all the earth? Do you believe that? 
think I've shared with you before, I'll share, it's worth sharing again in this context, that while my parents were not perfect, one of the things they did well was not make threats or promises they did not keep. If one of my parents said, when we get home, you're getting a spanking, I got a spanking when we got home. There were times I was hoping it wouldn't work out that way, but it happened. Do you know what the benefit of that was? Flip like was this. When dad said, I'll be at your game, he was at my game. There were times he drove straight from the airport in the rental car, in his suit and tie, and put the umpire gear on and got behind the plate and up the game for us. Because he said to be there. And Joel says, do you understand the yesterday of the Lord? He came in judgment as he said he would come. He says, do you know what that means for the today of the Lord? You can call out to him. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And we know that because he has done the things he said he would do. He came in judgment yesterday, which means he will come in salvation today if you call on him. Those two are part and parcel with one another. The yesterday of the Lord proves him so that we can trust him today. Jumping to chapter 3. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage, Israel. The valley of Jehoshaphat was not an actual physical place, even in the ancient world. If you had had a map back then, you would not have been able to find the valley of Jehoshaphat on it. Rather, it's a metaphorical place. Jehoshaphat means Yahweh judges. Yahweh judges. And Joel is now looking at the someday of the Lord. Someday he will come in judgment. Someday he will call all people to account. The someday of the Lord is judgment out in the future from Joel's perspective. Now is judgment something to be feared? Think about that for just a moment. Is judgment something to be feared? I'm going to put this out there. If the court is just, if there is equity in the system, then exactly half the people who go into court fear it, but the other half do not. The perpetrator fears judgment, but the victim waits for it. The one who has been done wrong wants the judgment to make things right. The one who is righteous longs for judgment. Does not live in fear of it. Did you catch what Joel said there? When I restore, there's hope here in this judgment. When I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will enter in judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage, Israel. Joel is spinning the someday of the Lord as good news for the people of the Lord. There's one other essential thing we must get from these opening verses of chapter 3, but we will circle back around to it. Mentally stick a pin there and those verses will come back to them. Verse 4. What are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon, or all the region, and all the regions of Philistia? Are you paying me back for something? If you are paying me back, I will return your payment on your own head swiftly and speedily. And the next section is more of this. Um, one of the things we, we, we would recognize is that in the Bible, the, the nations, those out there, are often metaphorically uh, meant to picture the unredeemed, the unregenerate. So Tyre and Sidon here is not that there are no believers in Tyre or Sidon, but rather they are metaphorically a picture for unbelievers and God's judgment upon them. Uh, picking up in verse 12. Let the nations stir themselves up and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Jesus uses that same imagery. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. This is not a valley where the people will decide, where the nations will decide. It's too late for this at that point. It's too late for that at this point. 
Rather, this is a valley of the Lord's decision, how he will decide the fates of the nations and of those before him. It's interesting how uh, 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 John, when he writes the book of Revelation, picks up uh, the same sort of language from the book of Joel to talk about final judgment. We see some of that here in verse 15. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake. But, uh, 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 but now, again, we see how judgment is only fearsome for some people. Look at how it continues. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. So you shall know that I am Yahweh your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain. And Jerusalem shall be holy and strangers shall never again pass through it. The rest of the chapter describes the blessings which will be poured out on God's people in the someday of the Lord. You know, I said there was one more thing about verse 1 we had to grasp if we were going to understand this, so let's go back now and take a look at that. Here in chapter 3, Joel links the judgment he describes with the end of chapter 2. You notice the wording there? For behold, in those days and at that time. So we have to ask ourselves, what days? What time is he referring to? Look back at 2.28. And it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Joel is saying in those days, when that happens, when the spirit of God is poured out, that's when this will begin to be fulfilled. That's when this is going to begin to happen. We're going to see God's judgment, the someday of the Lord. You see, we have a tendency to read these from our perspective. We sit here in the 21st century and we think this is talking about our future but it was talking about Joel's future. And Peter says it's begun to be fulfilled. Peter says in Acts 2 that what happened at Pentecost was a marker that these things were being fulfilled. When people are struck by that, they're like, seriously, this is the day of the Lord? That Joel, they're familiar, these are Jews, these are Faithful Jews, they're the ones who travel from all over the world to be there for the festival of Pentecost. These are faithful Jews, they know their Bible. And when Peter says, this is what was foretold in the prophet Joel, they go, seriously, this is the day of the Lord? What must we do to be saved? Remember the 3,000 that came to know the Lord that day at Pentecost? They cry out, tell us what to do. And what does Peter do? He quotes Joel. He says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. And then what does he do? He tells them who that is. This Jesus, whom you crucified, God raised from the dead, making him both Lord and Christ. Peter says, the day of the Lord foretold in Joel is being fulfilled that day of Pentecost. So we have to ask ourselves, Scott, you said the day of the Lord was a day of judgment. Where is the judgment? If Pentecost is the marker that these things were being fulfilled, that they had begun, that the final judgment, the someday of the Lord was underway, where's the judgment? Throughout all of human history, there have been unspeakably terrible catastrophes that have befallen people. Horrible glimpses into the hell that awaits the unregenerate. Entire Canaanite villages, man, woman, and child, slaughtered because that's God's wrath against sin. Locust plagues that devastate an entire nation. There have been phenomenal glimpses God's wrath against sin, but none come close to the cross. You ask, where is judgment in the day of the Lord? It was at the cross. It was there that the Father poured out his wrath on the Son. Why? Because of our sin. 
Peter says these things are being fulfilled among us because the Father has poured out all of his wrath, all of his fury against the rebellion of mankind, and he has dumped it on Jesus. No glimpse of judgment, no other day of the Lord has come close to what happened on that day. And Peter says, and Joel is telling us, that when we see that, we know that the final day is near. Those of us who are in Christ can now look forward to the final day of the Lord. For the fear of judgment against sin rests no longer on us. It has been taken away by Jesus. Those of us here today who are not trusting in Jesus Christ, who are not clinging to him and him alone, have to recognize that he did not suffer the judgment for you. It awaits you. It's still out there. You know, that stranger on the Paris train station that morning had to make a decision. He had to ask himself, should I even bother to try to communicate with these Americans? They clearly don't speak French. My English is terrible. Should I even try? And you say to yourself, well, why wouldn't he? Of course he should try. But I'm going to tell you, there actually are reasons why he wouldn't. In fact, I can think of two reasons why that stranger may have just sat there and let us get on that train. One, he didn't care. What do I care? But I care if they get in the wrong train and go to the wrong place. What does that affect me? It matters not to me one iota. But something in that man that day cared. He had compassion on us. He saw us. I don't know what his. I don't know if he just liked, just wanted to be friendly. He was just a good guy. I don't know if he he was aware of the reputation that the Parisians have for being a little snooty toward tourists, and he wanted to kind of correct the glory of Paris. I don't know what his motivation was, but something spurred him to care that day. And he grabbed me and said, you're getting on the wrong train. I think most Christians care. They don't want to see the lost get on the wrong train. They want to be like Joel and step up and say, hey, do you see what's happening? Judgment awaits. So what's the other reason he might not have said anything? What if he wasn't sure about the train schedule? Think about it. If you're sitting in that situation, what's the only way you're going to intervene? If you're absolutely 100% certain that you're right and they're wrong. It's bad enough if you get on the wrong train. It's worse if I put you on the wrong train. I'm not going to intervene and say, hey, you're on the wrong train, get on this one, if I'm not 100% certain that it's the right train. I think that is where a lot of us find ourselves. The world has chipped away at our certainty about the day of the Lord. The church has chipped away about our certainty of the day of the Lord. And we hear people say things like, you know, God is so loving that in the end he will just welcome everybody into his heaven. Okay, some people are, well, maybe not everybody. Hitler, Stalin, Mao, there's hell for those kinds of guys. Maybe mass murderers, pedophiles. Pedophiles definitely going to hell. But the rest of us are just going to be welcomed in. We have begun to doubt, is there actually a day of the Lord? And Joel says, look what's going on around you. Look what's going on around you. If there is no future day of the Lord, then why is this happening now? If God is that loving and, and that compassionate, and we're all going to be saved anyway, then why put us through COVID? Come on! That doesn't line up with the loving, compassionate God who will save everyone. But it does align with a loving, compassionate God who will save those who come to him, but not those who don't. It does make sense that the future day of the Lord is a real thing. 
we don't grab people on the train platform of life and tell them to get on the wrong train because we aren't sure we're on the right way. Sure enough that we're willing to stay. We'll keep going to church, keep reading our Bibles. I'm pretty sure that I'm on the right train. I'm not sure enough that I'm going to risk intervening in your life. Joel steps in and says, do you see what's happening around you? The day of the Lord is a real thing. His judgment comes in national catastrophes. His judgment came when it befell Jesus at the cross, and there is a judgment one day in the future. In the midst of that, Joel says, because we can be sure of God, we can be sure of this. All who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. Lord, give us confidence in these things. Take away our doubt. Take away our, our, our uncertainty. And build in us the assurance that the, that the things in history, the things in the past, point to your hand at work. That in this present, we recognize that at any moment it can come to an end. And so we must call out to you. Help us to see that someday you are coming back in final judgment. At a valley of decision where you will dispatch all people to, the, to their eternal place. In the midst of all of this, help us to see the, the compassion that you speak through Joel. Longing for us to come to you. Longing for us to cry out to you. Longing for us to admit that we cannot be the children we're supposed to be. And claiming Jesus as the one who will save us. It's in his name we pray this. Amen.